listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. So as Gabe said earlier, um, you know, we want to see more churches planted. So, um, you know, I have two roles, one role, I'm part of King's Community, another role, I have this day job, um, district superintendent and work, work with the district. And um, so let's talk about church planting. I mean, we're a church plant. So why do we plant churches? We plant churches because of Jesus, right? We plant churches because of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples. And... Uh, 1990, Dr. C. Peter Wagner wrote a book, Church Planning for a Greater Harvest. And on page 11 of that book, there's this famous quote that every church planner knows, and it's this, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. So we plant churches to reach people far from God. Um, fast forward 20 years from 1990 to 2010, and Ed Stetzer and Warren Bird write their church planning book, Viral Churches, and on page 16 of that book, they quote Wagner, but they add five words. And it, they say this, the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches who in turn reproduce themselves. So as a church plant, we don't just want to have this church plant. We want to reproduce ourselves. So why do we plant churches? We plant churches to reach people far from God. We plant churches to reach the unchurched, the de-churched, the lightly churched. We, we plant churches to see people's lives transformed by the grace of God. And um, we've been really busy. So in, in February of 2018, we saw Stonewater Fellowship launch to our northwest out by Canyon Lake. And, and so they got started out there, and, and they're doing really well. And then, of course, King's Community, um, we were born here, you know, January 13th, 2019. Um, but since then, uh, the following month, we launched Resonate Church in southwest Austin. And uh, so they're up there. And then um, Charles Wright, and uh, Gabe will be sharing more about Charles in, in weeks to come. But um, Charles is going to follow Gabe at Northeast Bible Church, uh, and he's going to anchor there, but we're going to do a collaborative effort with his residency, um, and he'll be here preaching um, next month. But uh, he's still in the Air Force, so he's going to do a two-year residency, and then he'd like to plant a, a multi-ethnic church in Converse, Texas. And then um, our team's really been busy. So we have Andrew Fang, who's planning a Chinese church up in Grand Prairie, Arlington area outside of Dallas to reach Chinese nationals and international students. And then um, Benjamin Waltensai, he's an Ethiopian church planner, planted five churches in Ethiopia. So he's going to plant a church up in the Dallas area to reach African immigrants. Uh, Benjamin Rivera, he's planning a Spanish-speaking church in Irving. And then um, Nathan Jordan's going to be planning a multi-ethnic church in Garland outside of Dallas. Edison Sanat um, is from Haiti, and uh, he wants to plant a church reaching Haitians in the DFW area. And then um, we have Manuel Abarca, who's our director of Hispanic church planning part-time for our district, and he's raised up this guy, Hernan Casino, and so he's going to send him out to plant a church on the south side of San Antonio, Spanish-speaking. 
And then um, I had dinner last Sunday night with Mario Diaz-Ceboyos, and he'll be moving from California to start September 1, and he's going to plant a Spanish-speaking church in the Stone Oak section of San Antonio, partnering with Stone Oak Bible Church and, and using their facility that they're building out there, and that'll be Spanish-speaking. And then uh, we do hurricane relief work, and so we have one of our centers is in Corpus Christi at our church there, and so they're going to do a residency with a guy named Kevin Sagert, and Kevin's going to plant a church in Rockport, Texas, to their north. And then um, I, Tuesday night, I was in a meeting with Daniel Perez, and he's in Hollywood, Florida, ready to move um, to the great state of Texas. And so I'm talking with two of our churches to see who might bring him on staff as a second language service pastor in Spanish. But he's gone through the assessment process, which is pretty rigorous, which Gabe went through a long time ago. And, uh, and so he'll be coming. And then the church in Laredo has a guy, Ricardo Flores, and we just need one final interview for him to see if he's the right guy um, for them. And, uh, and then he would plant a Spanish church down there in Laredo. So our team's been really, yeah, I mean, that's really uh, just amazing and incredible to see all of these church plants. So we're, we're excited about that. Okay, so shifting gears now back to King's Community, uh, pinch hitting for our pastor here this week. So on Wednesday, Joanne and I celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. So yeah, so... I, uh, I got her flowers, and what she really wanted in life was a composter. So she now has a composter. Um, I offered ladies to take her to McAdoo's and buy her a really nice expensive fish dinner, and that was the plan until I got home that day. And she said that we really have to go out. can I just cook? Like, okay, whatever you want. It's your anniversary. So uh, we did that instead. But... If, if we go back about 10 years, I had been invited to speak to a, a group of missionary couples about marriage, and I'm sure I shared some profound things that I've learned along the way, probably from a lot of pain uh, about marriage, but um, I don't know exactly what I told them, but I remember how I started. It was something like this. My wife Joanne and I have been happily married for 30 years, and 30 out of 33 isn't all that bad. And <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but our first couple of years, I mean, what I discovered was that people have different personalities, and, and we were not exactly the same. Imagine that, people, right? And uh, so, I mean, I discovered that I was an extrovert, and I get energized by being around people, and she was an introvert, and she gets energized by being alone. And, uh, you know, I would ask her a question, and... She wouldn't say anything, so obviously she didn't hear me, so I would repeat the question, being a good extrovert, to which she would say something like, I heard you the first time, I'm thinking. Now, that's a novel idea, because if you ask an extrovert a question, we just start talking, because the way extroverts work is uh, we think as we talk. So you ask any extrovert something, immediately they start talking, may have no idea what we're going to say, but we're thinking as we're talking, and we make it work out, whereas you extroverts, you quietly wait, think, and then say, okay, here we go. So, so people have different personalities, and the point of all that is that so do churches. So do churches. Churches have different cultures. There's a different ethos in churches. They have different personalities. I mean, some churches we would describe as warm, 
right? And, and you, you know this. You've been to enough churches. You've visited churches. You walk into a warm church. I mean, there's nice people there that greet you. They even smile. They might even shake your hand. Or they, you know, you feel welcome. You feel invited. You feel that they've really gone out of their way uh, to give you a good guest experience as you come into this warm church. Um, then there's churches that, that are cold. And, um, you know, those churches, you walk in and it's like nobody says anything to you. And nobody walks up to you, and you kind of really don't feel that you really belong there or very welcome. And, and it's just, you know, churches have different personalities. Some churches are loose. Some churches are tight. So what's a loose church look like? Hey, loose churches, these people are laid back. I mean, they dress casually when they come to church, and, uh, you know, it, it's a relaxed atmosphere. And you might say, hey, you know, I, I brought my Yeti with coffee. Is it okay to bring it into the, to the sanctuary? And, you know, in a loose church, they would say, hey, you know, come on, bring your coffee. If you got breakfast tacos, bring them as well, you know. But, uh, but in a tight church, those people, they dress a little more formally, and um, you just get the vibe that, okay, these people are not as relaxed or chill as, as other churches. And, and you might even see that sign, you know, above the entranceway going into the sanctuary or meeting room, food and drink not permitted, you know, that, that type of thing. So so. Churches have personality, so the, the question is, what kind of church are we? What's our personality as a church? I mean, it's being formed, it's being shaped, and, and in some ways, maybe the better question is, what kind of church will we become? Because, hey, we're still in our infancy. I mean, we're, we were born January 13th, so I don't know exactly what kind of church we will become. Although I do know I can bring coffee in, and I really appreciate that. So, you know, so I think we're more on the loose side than the, the tight side. So I think that is a good thing. Um, what I do know is this. God has given us a ministry, right? He's given us a new purpose because Christ changes everything. Christ in the world, Christ in us, it changes everything. And as a church, we have this, this new purpose. So our ministry involves proclaiming Christ, and our ministry also involves building up believers in Christ to maturity. I mean, we have this God-given responsibility to evangelize, to share the good news of the gospel with others and disciple people to win the lost, people far from God, and to help them grow in Christ. Um, Gabe's going to come up to Dallas in a week and help me teach uh, another group of church planners in our church planning boot camp. And, uh, and one of the things we'll talk about all week is disciple-making pathway. And we'll say, look, if you're going to start a church, uh, the reason you're doing it is to make disciples because that's the purpose that Jesus gave you for the church. And so what does that look like? You need a disciple-making pathway. You need to know how to make disciples. So you pray as we talked about this morning, you win the lost, evangelism, you build the believer, spiritual formation, you equip the worker, help everybody discover their gift and be deployed in ministry, you develop leaders, and then you send out disciple makers who go out and they pray and they work to win the lost, proclaim Christ, and, and so it goes. And so we don't just want to see people put their faith alone in Christ alone. We want that, but we don't leave them there, right? We then have that responsibility to build them up to Christian maturity. So if you have a Bible, you can 
follow along with me or you can just listen as I read, but I'm picking up where Pastor Gabe left off last week, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Colossians 1, 24. Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and here's what he says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Whoa. Now that sounds like something really hard to figure out. In fact, to be honest, when I first read this, I thought, so this is why Gabe wants me to preach this week. You know? No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, it's not hard to figure out at all, and we'll, we'll sort that out in a minute. So Paul says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we present every man complete in Christ, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So what is it that God wants us to do as a church? I think like Jesus, he wants us to see people as sheep without a shepherd. He wants to see people out there who are hurting and have great, great needs. He wants us to see people far from God heading for a Christless eternity in hell forever. Ephesians 2.12 says that before you and I had Christ in us, we were without hope and without God in the world. And that's the condition of everyone out there without Christ. They're without hope. They're without God in the world. And so God wants to use us as a church to proclaim Christ to help those people from being far from God to being fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So he wants to use us to take them from the position they're in to a new position as he works through us and in us. So we call that disciple-making, right? That's making disciples for God. We call it evangelism, sharing the good news. We call it spiritual formation, building people up to Christ-like maturity. But... Um, you need to understand that um, if we do this, it can be costly, okay? There's a price to be paid. So look at verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, <clears throat> let's take a time out and let me give you some context here, okay, because it'll help you understand everything. If we look back to Colossians 1.1, Paul begins the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So right from the get-go, Paul is saying, I am an apostle appointed by God. I have authority. He's stating that authority. And the reason he's doing that is because there's false teachers in the church at Colossae who are trying to delude the people and get them off course and get them off target. And he's going to combat that with this letter. Verse 7, he's talking about the gospel, and he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, 
our beloved fellow bondservant. Well, Epaphras was the pastor Gabe of the Colossian church. He was the leader of that church. He was the pastor there. And so Paul is throwing his apostolic support behind Epaphras in contrast to these false teachers. And, uh, and so there was this false teaching going on, and we, we call that Gnosticism. And um, a scholar put it this way here. He said, in the church of Colossae, a, church, a heresy called Gnosticism had crept into the church. It was trying to marginalize Christ. It was a combination of mysticism, Jewish legalism, and Greek philosophy. The heresy taught that Christ could not be God. So it's denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Can't do that. This belief was based on Greek philosophy, which taught the spirit was good, but the body was evil. And therefore, God could not have become a human because God cannot mix with evil, flesh versus spirit. It also taught Jesus was an angel, and that receiving him was simply not enough for salvation. One needed new revelation in order to be saved and have salvation and this is where the name Gnostic comes from. The Greek word gnosko means to know. And so in order to be saved, one needed the secret, knowledge, the secret knowledge that that only the Gnostics had. And so that's what they were telling the people. Paul's writing to combat that. Now, <coughs> excuse me, um, it's not such a big deal today in churches, although... Um, a couple weeks ago, my doorbell rang, and it was a couple of ladies from the Watchtower Society known as the Jehovah Witnesses. Well, that's exactly where they are here. See, they've gone off, and they don't understand the deity of Christ. They don't understand salvation. And we can say the same thing about Mormons. They've gone off. We can say the same thing about liberal Christians who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. So... <coughs> These people have had an impact in the world, but it's just not as big an issue today that uh, people are teaching this and, and doing that kind of stuff. So back to the text now with that context, understanding that what Paul's doing here, he's writing to the believers in the church, and he's trying to combat these false teachers. He's throwing his apostolic support behind Epaphras, their pastor, and so there we go. So verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And, and so there is suffering. Uh, I mean, he's actually right. He's, he's under arrest right now, so he's, he's suffering in that sense. But, you know, you notice his attitude. He says, hey, I rejoice. Why? Because if we get to suffer as Christians, it's a good thing. I mean, it's um, Alan Hirsch, um, a, a leading church thought guy, says, you know, the American church is rather risk adverse. And he said, you know, a little bit of risk is good for you. He said, it may kill you, but if it doesn't, you'll be stronger. And, uh, and so in this boot camp, I show this video of him. But, but we are pretty risk adverse. We don't like risk. And, and if, if we're going to do what Jesus wants us to do here, if we're really going to proclaim Christ, that takes some risk to try to have an impact on friends, neighbors, coworkers, family, Extended family, right? And there could be some backlash with all that. Now, <clears throat> what in the world does he mean in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Um, what it cannot mean, what it is impossible to mean, what it absolutely does not mean, 
is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross somehow is lacking, somehow wasn't enough. That is absolutely impossible because the whole New Testament says otherwise. Uh, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. I mean, it's finished. Um, come back next week, and you're going to see that he actually took the debt certificate for your sin, and he nailed it to the cross. I mean, just amazing. Come back next week. Great stuff. And, uh, and so, I mean, it is done. It is finished. So it simply cannot mean that. Um, I think what it means is that, you know, Jesus isn't here, right? You know, the people out there, they, they're not seeing Jesus, but we're here, and we're his body, and there's this mystical union between Christ and us, and, and so they can't attack Jesus, so they attack his church. I mean, every day, unfortunately, we read about the persecuted church, Nigeria, India, I mean, all these different countries where just because people name the name of Jesus, they're tortured, they're murdered, they're harassed, their homes are burned. I mean, terrible things happen to Christians around the world. Um, and so I think as, as we suffer these afflictions, it simply contributes to the afflictions against Christ. So I think that's, that's what he's saying. We're a part of that. Jesus is a part of us, Christ in the world, Christ in us. Um, if you think about it, uh, remember Acts chapter 9, Paul's on the D Damascus Road, and he has this encounter, and he's on the Damascus Road because he wants to kill Christians and throw them in prison, right? So he's persecuting the church. And then he has this dramatic encounter with the risen Christ who um, speaks to him from heaven. And he blinds him, and Paul hits the deck, and he's on the ground. But what does Jesus say to Paul in Acts 9? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Well, how is Paul persecuting Jesus. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Well, Paul was attacking Christians. Paul was attacking Christ's church. But that's not how Jesus sees it, right? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So that's the sense. So as these afflictions uh, come against us, come against Christ's church, um, they're, they're adding to the afflictions against Christ because he is here with us in that mystical sense. Now, um, verses 25 and 26 of this church, Paul says, I was made a minister. In contrast to you false teachers, I was made a minister. See, that authority again, according to the stewardship from God. I'm not self-appointed like you guys. This came from God. I have authority here, people. That's what he's saying. Um, bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested <coughs> to his saints. So he's not self-appointed like the false teachers. It comes from God. And he says, look, this is a stewardship. And, and we need to understand as a church, as a church plant, God has given us a stewardship. He expects things of us. He's empowered us. He wants us to proclaim Christ and present mature disciples, which we'll see in a moment. And, and so there's this stewardship. Now, 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, look, there's only one thing required of a steward, that he or she be found faithful, faithfulness. And, and so that's the question. 
Are we being faithful to what Christ has called us as a church? And so each one of us has to answer that because, you know, as you well know, this building isn't the church. Um, we are the church. I mean, there's not even a steeple here, right? So it can't be the church building. I mean, we are the church. We have this commission from Christ, our Savior, and it's something that we need to do. And uh, we do this, like Paul, for the benefit of others. Um, a week and a half ago, I was in Houston, and our REACH Global Crisis Response Team, they were um, training new recruits as we do relief work around the world. And um, we were at a site there in Houston. And so they asked me to come in since it was in my district, Texas, Oklahoma. And they wanted me to speak the first day on the value of church planning on the second day of how their organization could partner well with our churches. So the first one was the value of church planning. And as Gabe says, I mean, I love church planning, so I could just talk about that all day. But I started out this way. I said, you want to know about the value of church planning? I'm here because of church planning. And then I told him this story. I said, I got a phone call from a guy named Brent one time. And, and Brent said, hey, I'm a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. I've been an associate pastor for four years. And I feel God's wanting me to plant a church, calling me to plant a church. So I called the seminary, asked who could help me, and they gave me your name and number and said I should call you. And I said, wow, hey, that's really nice, and I appreciate them doing that. So that led to an hour conversation with Brent. And my last question to him was this. So, Brent, do you want to plant one church and stay there a long time, or do you want to plant a church, get that up and running, and then move on to plant another church, get that up and running, go on to plant another church? He said, oh, no. He said, I don't want to be like my dad. He said, I want to stay as long as I can. I'm like, well, what did your dad do? He said, oh, he was a church planner. I said, well, who did he work with? He said, well, he worked with the conservative Baptist. I said, huh. I said, how about that? I said, that's how my wife and I both came to faith in Christ. And I said, so uh, where did your mom and dad plant churches? And he said, New Jersey. And I'm like, whoa. Um, okay, like where in New Jersey? He said, well, Cherry Hill for one place. I'm like, you're kidding. I mean, his mother and father planted the church where I heard the gospel and embraced it for the first time. And so I'm like, you want to know the value of church planning? I'm here because of church planning. But here's the deal. Not only did they proclaim Christ, but they built me up in Christ. I mean, it was amazing. Um, Hank and Nina, they got a hold of me and they said, hey, we got this class. Love to have you come to this class. We're going to go through this book, 52 Major Bible Themes. And so they taught me all this stuff about the Bible in my first year as a brand-new baby Christian. Um, all this stuff, you know, um, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, all about the Bible, all that stuff. Then um, there was a guy, Carl Combs, and Carl started coming to the church, and Bill Bright had recruited him to head the lay ministry for southern New Jersey and Philadelphia. So Carl looked around for somebody he could disciple, and he saw me. I was 23 years of age, so he grabbed me and got me in this small group, and we started meeting Sunday nights. So Hank and Nina had me meeting in Sunday school on Sunday morning, then i go to church, then Carl had me meeting Sunday nights, you know, just a, like a 10-week group. And we went through these transferable concepts, and I learned about the Bible and how to pray and how to, you know, share my faith, proclaim Christ, to all these things. And, uh, and then Carl moved to a different city and was no longer in the church, but the church hired Dave Horrocks, and Dave was 
now assistant pastor. So he looked around for somebody that he could invest in, and he saw me. I mean, all this happened in like the first 18 months, two years after I became a brand-new um, Christian. So, I mean, that was just a good model of exactly what Paul's talking about here of where, as a church, they proclaimed Christ, they shared the good news of the gospel, life-changing gospel, but they didn't leave me there. They built me up. People came alongside. And, of course, we have community groups and, and other ways of doing that here at King's Community that people need to be a part of. But that's just a good illustration of what he's talking about here. And uh, now he talks about this mystery in, uh, in 26 to 29, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. And as Gabe has been saying, that changes everything, people, right? It changes everything, Christ in you. The hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works with in me. So now a mystery is something that previously wasn't revealed. Now it is revealed. Well, what wasn't revealed was Christ. And, and Christ has now been revealed, the good news of the gospel. And, and so that's this mystery. And then also the fact that Christ would, you know, I mean, God had been working with the Jewish people. Well, now he's working with the Gentiles, and Christ is in Gentiles just as well as, as Jews. And so this is this incredible mystery. And it says that Christ is our hope. I mean, one day we believe we're going to be with Christ, right? That's our hope for the future. Now, I got on the Internet, and I looked up a church called King's Community Church, and I found the website, and, and I dug around a little bit, and I read some stuff. And, uh, and so here's what it says on the website. It says, we engage in making missional disciples. The church's unique purpose is to bring glory to God, to make him famous in all the earth by proclaiming Christ and making mature disciples. Maturity is inherently missional, embracing the call to grow as both as a Christ follower and a disciple maker. Well, I thought, my goodness, it sounds like Gabe read our passage when he wrote that. How about that? You know, isn't that interesting? And so, I mean, this is what we are about as a church. So th this is a, what we would say a seminal passage. This is a bedrock passage. This is a critical passage for who we are at King's Community Church. We proclaim Christ. We present people as mature disciples. So it's just amazing. Now, <clears throat> to be complete in Christ, I think what Paul's saying is we have maturity. You know, it's, it's, we're building up to Christ's like maturity. And, and notice he says every man. Three times he says every man, every man, every man. So false teachers, there's no special elites. It's every man. It's everybody that this applies to. And <clears throat> I mean, the application, I mean, Christ in the world, Christ in us, Christ in you, it changes everything. You can never go back. It changes everything. Everything is different. We have this purpose, proclaim Christ, present people as mature disciples. 
as our website says, we have this challenge to grow as a Christ follower and to grow as a disciple maker. So we want to do both. It's our personal growth, but then we're supposed to help other people. You know, Paul said he did all this for their benefit. We are not here for our benefit, right? The church is the only institution that isn't there to serve itself. We're here for the benefit of others because God wants to reach them. So how are you doing at growing this year? And hey, this year, I mean, it's pretty short, just a couple of months. So what about the last 12 months or the last 36 months? I mean, all of us should be growing in Christ, right? And we ought to be able to look back and say, you know, if I look, you know, if I look back to last week, I'm not really not going to see anything, to be honest. But if I look back a year or three years or five years, ideally, hopefully, if we're doing what our website says we're to be doing, uh, we could say, you know, I can see some growth, some spiritual growth as a Christ follower. How are we doing at growing? How are you doing at growing as disciple makers, having impact on others? Same thing. We ought to be able to see some improvement, some growth with that. And, uh, you know, I love out there in the hallway, we have our blessed strategy, right? And, and we've been, you know, talking about that since the foundation of the church. Bless, you know, begin with prayer. Listen to people. Eat a meal with them, which isn't hard. Easier for some of us than others, apparently. Um, <clears throat> myself. And, and uh, you know, serve people. Share your story of Christ in you. And, and so, you know, how are we doing as a church helping people grow in Christ and discovering him? Now, the theme of the book of Colossians is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I mean, I love that word, preeminence. You know, we don't use that word very often, right? You don't walk around <coughs> because Colossians 1.18, what preeminence means is first, first place. And so what it's saying is, Jesus Christ has first place. Everyone, everything else is behind him. He is first. No one else is first. It's the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Now, in case you didn't know it, we have a problem with that, right? Um, it's called our sin nature. So as Gabe and I are in Dallas teaching all these new church planters how to brilliantly plant new churches, one of the things I'm going to tell them is this, because they probably don't know this yet, but they're going to find out shortly. I'm going to say, look, <clears throat> the only kind of people that you're going to have in the churches that you're going to plant are sinful people. And sinful people behave sinfully, and sinful people are selfish. And that's all of us, right? I mean, none of us are perfect yet. None of us has arrived. I mean, one of the things I love about this church is I think we're developing that culture that, you know, no one here thinks they've arrived and have it all figured out. We're in this together, learning together, growing together. So that's wonderful. <clears throat> but, you know, we're all sinners in the church. And, um, and so we struggle with giving Jesus first place. So that's a challenge for every one of us this morning. What areas of your life does Christ not yet have first place? And what are you going to do about that? See, we're supposed to be growing spiritually. We proclaim Christ, but we build people up to Christ-like maturity. And Colossians 1.18, he's preeminent. He's to have first place. Well, <clears throat>
Paul actually struggled in prayer for the believers in Colossae because, um, you know, he's somewhere else and he's not with them. And, and so he struggled because he wanted to see this happen in their lives. He, he, he so wanted to see them grow. And uh, he was excited about that. He wanted them to walk with God and enjoy all that they had in God. Um, <clears throat> I remember first time I ever heard uh, John 10.10. 10. John 10.10 10 says this. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. So Jesus wants to give us this incredible life. The devil wants to steal, kill, and destroy and do nothing but mess us up and damage us. But Jesus came that we could have this abundant life. And that's what Paul wanted for these Colossian believers. He wanted their faith solid. He wanted them to be able to withstand these false teachers um, who were trying to damage them. So, and we won't spend as much time here, obviously, because you want to go to lunch, uh, but chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, now, Laodicea was a nearby town. So these, these three towns, it's called the Lycus Valley, and there's the Lycus River, and there's Heropolis, there's Laodicea, and there's Colossae. So we got those three cities all close together. They're, they're about 100 miles east of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> but, um, you know, if these false teachers could impact the believers in Colossae, well, Laodicea is not that far away. They could damage them as well. So he has this concern for them as well and for all those who've not personally seen my faith. Now what does he want? That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. See his argument against the false teachers there? I don't want you deluded. I don't want these people messing you up in your faith. Um, I don't want that to happen. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So Paul is excited here. He's rejoicing that these false teachers have not corrupted the faith of the believers in Colossae. They're showing good discipline. They're showing stability in their faith in Christ. So what kind of church ought we to be? Well, <clears throat> if we look at this passage, I think we ought to be a church where we struggle in prayer for one another and for people outside of the church. We ought to be a praying church, and we ought to be growing in that area, and we should be growing as individuals in our prayer lives. So we should struggle in prayer. What kind of a church? I think we ought to be a church where we encourage one another. Um, obviously, we don't want to be a church where we discourage one another. Well, we want to encourage one another, right? And, uh, but that takes some intentionality. That takes some work. Um, Paul says... You know, we ought to be a church where we love one another. And, uh, you know, as I think about it, I think to really um, have the opportunities to encourage one another and love one another, 
I think we probably do that best in our groups, right, our community groups, because that's that smaller group time where we can really share and get into each other's lives and pray for one another and encourage one another and love one another. <laughs> and then he says, you know, we ought to be the kind of church where we understand all that we have in Christ. I mean, we have so much. We have everything, really, everything. Because Christ in you, Christ in the world, changes everything, everything. And we've got to understand that. And, 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 and he wanted that for the believers. And then lastly, <clears throat> I think clearly, we need to be a church where we proclaim Christ, right? We share the good news, the life-changing gospel of Jesus, and we build people up to Christ-like maturity. We present them as mature disciples. We want to be the kind of church where people not only put their faith in Jesus and have salvation, but now we really work as a church to build them up and help them to become mature disciples in Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, and you've never clearly understood the gospel. You've never fully understand it is finished. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't do works to, to get your way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is absolutely excuse, exclusive, and we do not apologize for that <clears throat> because Jesus said it. <laughs> He's the only way. There is no other way. Ephesians says that it's not on the basis of good works that we would boast, but it's a gift of God. So we would invite you, if you've never made that decision, if it's just never clicked, today's the day. It could be the greatest day of your life where because we've proclaimed Christ, you've received Christ as your Savior. Would you bow with me? Close your eyes. Lord, um, thanks that we get to be your church. We get to do church. Um, it's work. Um, it's effort, and, and yet we rejoice because we can do this for the benefit of others. We can help each other grow. And Lord, um, if there's anyone here this morning and they've never clearly understood the gospel, that Jesus, you died on the cross, you paid the penalty for all of their sins, past, present, even future, because it's not something we can do, it's something you needed to do for us. Lord, help them by faith to believe that you're God, that you did that for them, and trust that their sins are forgiven because you say so. So, Lord, thanks for today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.